Good morning, church. My name is Carrie, and I'm your scripture reader today. Today, we're still running through uh, 1 Thessalonians, if you want to turn there or scroll there on your phone. We're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to be reading verses 9 through 12 together this morning. So let's read that together. About brotherly love. You don't need me to write to you because you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. In fact, you are doing this toward all the brothers and sisters in the entire region of Macedonia. But we encourage you, brothers and sisters, to do this even more, to seek to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, so that you may behave properly in the presence of outsiders and not be dependent on anyone. The word of the Lord. Thanks so much, Carrie. So good to be with you guys this morning. I'm glad to be here. Uh, this is a uh, this is a big day for my mom today, actually. So my mom is a, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Shout out for moms, right? And the troops. Um, I've got I've got I've got both of my family now. So anyway, uh, yeah. My mom has uh, been over the course of the majority of my life the most faithful and disciplined and dedicated evangelist that I've ever known. Morning, Phoebe. And uh, today, she's getting to baptize someone that she led to the Lord. So it's the first time she'll ever baptize anybody. And my dad told me that the, the guy that she led to Jesus uh, is like six foot five and weighs quite a lot. And my mom is 4'11". And so my dad is serving as the assistant. Now, my dad is like 5'8". So it's like, but if you stack... 4'11 and 5'8 together, I think you get six foot five or roughly that. So anyway, uh, my mom's having a big day today and, and there's a couple of mom references that I'm gonna share with you this morning. Uh, I love my mom, I'm thankful for her and I'm inspired by her dedication to see people come to know Jesus. My dad said that COVID was a scheme of the devil to prevent my mom from sharing the gospel because he said, if anybody gets within six feet of her, she shares the gospel with them. And it's, it's true, it's true. Every time they have somebody working on their house, she leads them to Jesus. Every time they buy a new house, she leads her realtor to Jesus. When she goes to restaurants, somehow gospel conversations just sort of magically happen for her. Uh, every time she's interacting with someone who may or may not know the Lord, she shares the gospel with them. I have friends from high school Friends from high school, I graduated high school in 1995. Friends from high school that my mom still prays for regularly that they would come to faith in Jesus and that she still sends cards to on significant holidays and birthdays to them and tells them, I'm still hoping that you'll find the love of Jesus. One of them is a friend of mine named Chris who is a militant atheist. I mean, militant atheist. And every time my mom talks to him, she's like, you know, I love you, Christopher. I love you so much. And I'm praying that you will discover the love of Jesus. And my mom's so sweet. He can't help but be like, you know, thank you, Mama Hollis. You know, I appreciate it, you know. But like, he's, he's violently opposed to the gospel. But uh, nobody can resist a sweet little old lady who's gonna share the gospel with them and love them relentlessly and endlessly. And I gotta tell you that when my family moved to the Metro East to plant Red Hill, the single thing that Sarah and I talked about the absolute most was what would it look like if we could give our lives to this one goal of seeing a community transformed by the power of the gospel? Like what, what would that look like to just say we were just gonna give our lives to that? And, and that's, that's why we planted Red Hill. We wanted to see what would happen if a church would give itself completely to the idea that the gospel still saves souls that people can be saved not just from sin, but they can actually be transformed. Their life can be transformed by the power of the gospel. I still wanna see this community one to Jesus. I still believe that the story of the gospel is true. I still believe that everyone who believes in Jesus is saved and that everyone who is saved is given the power to be transformed. And I still believe that our church is gonna be part of that. Total commitment is what's required and there is a small and slight deviation that's very easy to take because we have, I think it's safe to say, a pretty casual environment. Uh, I was making a joke at GC last week. I wore the exact same thing that I preached in except for I changed shirts. And I was like, I took off my preaching clothes and somebody was like, there's a difference. And I was like, no, there's no difference. You know, there's no difference. But there's, there's another pastor who used to say about his church's casual environment. He'd say, don't confuse our casual environment for a casual commitment. 
I think it's really important for us to zero in on this as a church. A casual environment is a very good thing. A casual commitment to the mission is a very dangerous thing. And it's a damning thing for people who don't know the Lord. For us to take casually that which Jesus gave his life, his body, and his blood for is really kind of an insult. It's kind of a slap in the face in what he did for us. The danger for us, the danger for us is getting comfortable in a really, really great church and just sort of settling in and really liking it the way that it is. It's also, I want to say, a tremendous gift to say, I love my church and I like it the way that it is. That's a, that's a gift because I think most of us have been a part of churches that we really didn't enjoy, we didn't like the culture, and we didn't have a good experience. So we know what it's like on the other side, but we have to remember that the purpose of what we're doing is not for our own enjoyment and benefit. The purpose of our existence is to bring glory to God by proclaiming the gospel to the world, to see people transformed by the power of the gospel, that's why we still exist. Otherwise, he'd just take us home. So uh, we, we can't ever let our casual environment create a casual commitment. Today's text has what's called, um, it's called a henna clause in Greek. It's a henna clause. And a henna clause is a clause that usually in, in English language is translated as so that. So there's usually a so that that goes along with it. And we see that in verse 12 is where the henna clause is. You're all getting just a, a, like a very small Greek lesson because that's really all I know. After taking my second year of Greek, my Greek professor told us, please don't tell anyone that you know Greek. You know enough Greek to be a heretic. That's how much Greek I know. I know enough Greek to be a heretic. So this is from someone else, not from my experience with Greek, right? But a henna clause usually has a so that in it. And we're actually gonna read the last verse here because I think it's important for us to have the so that in view as we look at the rest of this text. So it says in verse 12, so that you may behave properly in the presence of outsiders and not be dependent on anyone. The henna clause gives greater force to the preceding verses and more certain results, which are explained as you may behave more properly in the presence of outsiders and you may not be dependent on anyone. So when you see a henna clause, what usually happens is instead of it being something that might happen, it's something that will happen. And the things that precede it are emphasized more. So Greek is a much more beautiful and complex language than English, um, which is really just honestly difficult and terrible. Like the past tense of go is went. They don't even share a letter, guys. That's, they don't, and that's like basic English. They don't, there's not a single letter in common. So if you ever travel outside the country and speak English with someone and they're like, it's a very difficult language. You're like, no, it's super easy. The past tense of go is went. And they're like, yes, that's, that's very confusing. You know, um, In Greek, we have all kinds of linguistic uh, cues that are built into the structure of sentences. If you enjoy diagramming sentences, like if you are a super, a super nerd, I think is what it's called, um, then you would really get down on Greek. You would really enjoy Greek because there's all kinds of beautiful clues that help you understand authorial intent, what, what the author was trying to say and what the author, author intended to say. And part of what this author intended to say is to the local church, all the things that are gonna precede this is so that you can have two postures that are so important. Two postures for a local church that are unbelievably important. And I really want everyone to grab this and to keep this in view as we think about this passage and as we think about Red Hill. The two postures that Paul says, I really want you guys to have is I want you to have a posture that's redemptive and I want you to have a posture that's agile. So that... You'll be well thought of by outsiders so that outsiders who see you living will say, I respect those people. I'm willing to listen to those people. I don't always agree with those people, but I, I respect them. And Agile, he, he says, we, we don't want you to be dependent on anyone, that the resources of the church would be available for people with need and for opportunities presented by the Spirit. So, 
so that we could be redemptive and agile. Redemptive and agile. Everything in verse 9 through 12 is pointing the local church towards these two postures. So we're going we're gonna to walk through it together. Paul says, about brotherly love, you don't need me to write to you because you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And usually when Paul says, you really don't need this information, that's when he gives you the information. Like a teacher or a parent or a grandparent, like, I know you already know this. I know you're already doing this. So let me tell you about it. I'm gonna inform you even more. And that's what Paul does right here. He says, you really don't need to be taught about brotherly love. Brotherly love, by the way, is a phrase that outside of the New Testament in Greek literature and language was used almost exclusively, almost exclusively to talk about blood family relationships, the love that's shared inside of a family. And I think it's really significant that in the New Testament, this word, this, this philos, this Philadelphia, this brotherly love, it's spoken about the family of God. Because in Christ, we're not only new creations, we're also a new family. When you come into Christ, you're not just coming into him as an individual who now lives life on their own. There are no lone ranger Christians. And by the way, those of you who have seen black and white television, the lone ranger had a sidekick. He wasn't even lone. Even the Lone Ranger wasn't lone. We are not meant to live this life alone. We're not meant to follow Jesus alone. In Christ, we're new creations brought into a new family. And verse nine here starts a new section of this letter. It's really, it's not uh, just one more paragraph talking about the passage that we dove into last week. But it does continue an important theme it's an important theme. One of the key ways that we differentiate ourselves from the world is by loving one another instead of using one another. The world doesn't understand this. The world thinks about relationships oftentimes, not exclusively, not always, and not universally, but oftentimes it thinks about relationships based on their utility. Does this person help me do something? Does this person improve my life? And you'll hear things like you have to cancel out, like get rid of negative people in your life. Get rid of people who cause you pain. Get rid of people who cause you problems. You have to zero out the negativity so that you can have a positive experience. And while there are some instances when it is very good, very right, and very just to say, I can no longer interact with this person on a regular basis, we're never supposed to dismiss a person. We're never supposed to cancel a person. We're never supposed to remove a person from the hope of redemption, from the hope of the work and the power of the gospel. We must first and foremost see one another as brothers and sisters in Christ rather than, as we talked about last week, objects of sexual temptation or objects of sexual traps. We have to have a transformed way of understanding relationships with one another. We, ha we have to be renewed in our minds. The whole world sees everyone as a potential sexual partner or not. And oftentimes in our culture today, that is the first and the primary filter that is used. That's the thing that everyone is cognizant of, that everyone talks about and that everyone focuses on. And Paul in the New Testament says, we have to find another way of relating to each other as brothers and as sisters. A beautiful thing about brothers and sisters and the way that they interact is sometimes they fight with each other. Always they remain brothers and sisters. Nothing can be done about that. Nothing can change the reality of who your brothers and your sisters are. Nothing. And when you have been brought into a family which is kept by the power of the hand of Jesus, he said, everyone that you've given me is in my hand and I've not lost one of them. You just need to know you can't get out of this thing. You can run away from it if you want to. Like you can run away. If you run away, we're gonna try to drag you back. We're gonna try, okay? You, we're gonna try. 
When you look around the room, even in a room that's this small, and it's, it's not small. We don't have a small congregation or a small church. This is not a small group of people, but even in a room this small, you will find people who will annoy you. You will find people who will infuriate you. You will find people who will frustrate you. And here's what the world will tell you to do. Just get rid of those people. Get away from those people. But what God will tell you is this. Every person in your life is given to you by me. And every one of them serves a purpose. And the purpose is to continue the work that I began in you, which is conforming you into the image of Jesus. Not everyone gets equal access to me. Not everyone gets equal vulnerability from me. But every person that God puts in my life is part of the story of God working on me. And every person that God puts in my life is put there so that I can be part of the story of God working on them. We have to have a new way of seeing each other. These Thessalonians were practicing this. They were doing it. And Paul says that it wasn't because he was a great teacher. It wasn't because they were super spiritual or special or gifted with some magical powers. He says they were doing it because God himself had taught them. You don't need me to write to you because you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. This is a really important point. This is a really important point. Spiritual things can only be understood by spiritual people who are taught by the spirit of God. Apart from that, you're not gonna understand anything. Apart from that, my friends and family members who do not know the Lord will not know the Lord. There is not a method, there's not a tool, there's not a phrase, there is not a sermon, there's not a joke or a story or an illustration or a statement that I can make that will enlighten the darkness that is inside of them. It's a work of the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit of God illuminates these things. Remember when Paul, or excuse me, when Peter is talking to Jesus and Jesus is asking the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter steps forward and he's like, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And, and Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. This was not revealed to you by men, but by my Father who is in heaven. You didn't learn this in a Sunday school lesson, you learned this from the Spirit of God. You know what that means? Here's what it means. Every one of us can observe God working in our lives. Every one of us, if we understand this, can see and feel ourselves growing in our sanctification, growing in our spiritual strength, and growing in our understanding of who God is and how the world works. Because when we read our Bibles, or when we pray, or when we listen to a sermon, or when we engage with someone else and we go, oh man, I don't want to be patient, but I am being patient. Or when we love someone, or when we understand something in God's word, we can say, that's a work of the spirit of God inside of me. It's not because I'm smart. It's not because I'm capable. It's not because I'm disciplined. It is because God is merciful that I understand anything. If you look over in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I'm actually going to read this whole chapter because I think it's really important and I think that this sort of uh, enlightens or elucidates this point that, that Paul wants to make. He says, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, announcing the mystery of God to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not be based on human wisdom, but on God's power. We do, however, speak a wisdom among the mature, but not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. On the contrary, we speak God's hidden wisdom in a mystery, a wisdom God predestined before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age knew this wisdom because if they had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no human heart has conceived, God has prepared these things for those who love him. 
Now God has revealed these things to us by the Spirit. Did you catch that? Since the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God, for who knows a person's thoughts except a spirit within him. In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who comes from God, so that we may understand what has been freely given to us by God. We also speak these things, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, explaining spiritual things to spiritual people. But the person without the spirit does not receive what comes from God's spirit because it's foolishness to him. He's not able to understand it since it is evaluated spiritually. The spiritual person, however, can evaluate everything, yet he himself cannot be evaluated by anyone for who has known the Lord's mind that he may instruct him. But we have the mind of Christ. Spiritual people understand spiritual things through the mercy and the work of the spirit of God. If you come across something and you don't understand it, if you come across something and you're not able to do it, if you come across someone and you're not able to love them, what you need is not a pep talk or a self-help book. What you need is a work of the spirit of God inside of you. And by the way, if you come across a person that is difficult, irritating, frustrating, or just lost and obstinate, what they need is not your wisdom, not your cleverness, not your insight. What they need is a work of the Spirit of God. This is liberating for us. This is liberating. You know why? Because some of you guys are terrible communicators. Just real bad at it. Some of you actually hate talking to human beings. You're like, I would be more comfortable talking to robots or just no one than needing to speak to a person. Some of you are a bit more like me and believe that through your cleverness of speech and your force of personality, you can actually affect change in a person's life. All of us need to have the humility that says, it really isn't about me, my giftedness, my limitations, my capacities, my hesitations. It really is about the work of the spirit. So what's our job? Our job is to raise the sails of gospel effort. Our job is to raise the sails of gospel effort and allow the wind of the spirit to fill them and to move. God's job is to give us his son and to, and to give us his spirit. And with the son and with the spirit, we get all things. That's what it says in Romans chapter eight and verse 32, that he who gave his own son for you, how will he not with the son also give you everything? All things. Jesus said, I'm going away from from you. And that's actually a really good thing because what I'm going to do is I'm going to send my spirit and my spirit will teach you everything and will call to your remembrance all the stuff that I've said. A work of the spirit. Paul says, you're doing this. I just, I really like this. I really like this. Paul's like, I don't really have to talk to you about brotherly love because you're doing this. That's just fantastic to me because I like encouragement. I like encouraging people. I like people who are the rising tide. You know what I'm saying? The rising tide lifts all the boats. Like to just, just to be around a person that wants to build other people up, what a gift. Like what a gift it is. To give someone that gift, to encourage them, what a gift that is. Could I just say to everyone here, be an encourager when you can. When you see something good, you can say something about that. When you see someone doing something positive, you can say something about that. You can step in and be like, hey, you did a great job there. Good work. Keep it up. I'm proud of you. Don't give up. He says, you're doing this. Do this even more. I'm wearing my marathon shirt today. I've run two marathons now, and I think that makes me an expert. And I have discovered the key to running a marathon. There's two steps. Here are the steps. Step one, start running. And step two, do this even more. 
That's it, guys. That's it. That's not the key to like breaking a world record or something. I don't know anything about that. And I don't have the body shape for that. But the key to doing it is to start doing it and then just do it more. That's it. And if you ever go see a marathon, you know what you'll discover? There are people who run marathons who are like six foot 17. Like they're super tall and super skinny. There are people who are really, really short. There are people who are extremely thin. There are people who are jacked, muscled up, like CrossFitters. And there are people who are overweight. All shapes and all sizes. How do they do it? Well, they start and then they just do it more. Can we learn something important here? Can we learn something? Can we learn to love people and to encourage people exactly where they are? To love them and to encourage them just right where they are, not where we think they ought to be. This is important for parents, by the way, of which I am one. Not where we think they ought to be. This is important for children of parents as they look at their parents. Not where, to love them and to encourage them right where they are. And to celebrate every step of obedience and faithfulness and effort that they take. Every single step. And by the way, not just to celebrate every step that they take, but to celebrate every step that you yourself takes. Because we're not too bad at celebrating other people and their progress in, in faith. But man, we're self-condemning monsters, aren't we? I mean, just monsters. It's like we lack the ability to demonstrate grace to ourselves because we say to ourselves, I should be better. I should be further along. I should be more faithful than what I am. So we do a thing that we're supposed to do. And instead of saying like, yeah, that's it. Good job. Like you're doing that. Do that more. We go, take the step of faithfulness and obedience. Doesn't matter. You should have taken that step 15 years ago. You should have done that so long ago. You're pathetic and you're never going to be what you're supposed to be. I mean, this is, this is a common occurrence and one of the things that I share with people whenever I'm doing counseling with them and that I share with myself when I'm doing counseling with myself because I think it was my, work, my wife who first shared it with me in a moment of need in my own life was you cannot be faithful to the gospel and apply it to others when you're unwilling to apply it to yourself. It is unjust to give those around you mercy and grace but to refuse it from yourself. And the things that you would say, which are true to others and true for others are also true for you. This is part of the way of, of growing in brotherly love is to say, I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you for trying. I'm proud of you for taking that step of obedience. We used to sing a song when I was in RAs, like Royal Ambassadors. I know some of you went to GAs. Uh, I went to RAs. GAs was Girls in Action. I'm not sure why Southern Baptists thought that was a good phrase for young ladies that they were trying to train up in righteousness because it seems to me, but, but we used to sing this song that, that went like, he's still working on me. Does anybody besides me remember this song? Anybody remember this song? That he's still working on me to make me what I ought to be. It took him just a day to make the sun and the stars, the earth and the moon, Jupiter and Mars. And I'm not yet what I'm going to be, but he's still working on me that in just a day, he's able to make all of creation and he's taking a lifetime and even eternity to make you. And not casually, but carefully, knitting you together in your mother's womb, knowing every hair on your head, knowing every day before it's lived, knowing every word before it's spoken and 
even still demonstrating his love for you by sending his son to die for you that you might be redeemed. About brotherly love, you're doing it. Do it more. If you want to see part of the example, you can look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8 where Paul uses the Thessalonians as an example to the Corinthians about how to love and how to live generously. Verse 11 gives us three ways that we can grow in brotherly love. So just, it's not meant to be an exhaustive list. It's just a few, like four short verses that we're looking at here. This is not an exhaustive list of what it looks like to grow in brotherly love. But I think it's some stuff that I think is pretty pertinent for us today in the culture that we live in today. And I wanna make sure though, that we look at these through the filters of being redemptive and agile as a local church. And I will explain them as we go through. The first one he says is to seek to lead a quiet life. One of the ways that you can grow in brotherly love is to seek to lead a quiet life. The world today is filled with quarrelsome people. I was, I was reminded in my Facebook memories this morning, I, I posted something, I don't know, like eight years ago that said, it was like just a, just a graphic, just like a meme or something. And it, and it was just words. It just said, I don't know if you know this or not, but you can see something on the internet that you disagree with and keep on scrolling. <laughs> it's actually possible. You can do it. I'm not saying you always should. I'm just saying you can do it. Paul is, instructing, uh, is not instructing the Thessalonians to remove themselves from the culture. He is not instructing them to avoid conflict. He's not, definitely not instructing them to remove the offense of the gospel or to be silent about the culture's need for Jesus, for forgiveness, for redemption. That's not what he's saying. What he is saying is be a people of one purpose. Of one purpose. To live a life, to have a ministry of reconciliation. This is what Paul said to the Corinthians about Jesus. So that God gave his son to the world with the ministry of reconciliation. His son then died on a cross and gave to all of his followers the ministry of reconciliation. It's the work that we have. In other words, let's not be known for career accomplishments, let's not be known for social connections, and let's not be known for political affiliations. Let's be known as the family of God, deeply in love with Jesus, powerfully transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit, and passionately committed to sharing the hope of the gospel. This quiet life, I read a bunch of commentaries about it because I was like, what in the world is Paul talking about right here? Because honestly, this is like the opposite of my personality, a quiet life, like seek to lead a quiet life. I'm like, <laughs> that is gonna be difficult for me. <laughs> That is gonna take some work, Jesus. You know what I'm saying? I'm gonna need some people to celebrate some days when I don't post some stuff, okay? I'm gonna need some people to encourage me in the work of seeking to lead a quiet life. And I read some stuff that was like, well, maybe what he's talking about is seek to lead a quiet life. It, it might mean don't be overly politically engaged and involved. But in this culture, only people of tremendous affluence had the opportunity to be involved in politics. So although the principle can probably be applied, I'm not sure that's exactly what he's referring to. Some commentators were like, no, what he's talking about is not raising a ruckus about a bunch of things that really aren't related to the gospel. I'm like, yeah, that fits as well. I don't know if that's exactly what he means or not, um, but that, that sort of fits. Some commentators said what he's talking about is having a settled peace on the inside, like to seek for yourself that shalom kind of peace where there's balance inside of you and you're not disrupted all the time. Like you have margin in your life, you have peace in your life. You're not endlessly anxious, frustrated, worried kind of a person. I'm like, yeah, that, that probably kind of fits as well. Some People, some commentators said that really what he's talking about is the, the effort 
to be a good witness to the world around you, to not cause problems and put stumbling blocks in front of people. And I'm like, yeah, that sort of fits. I think I'm pretty comfortable personally saying there's a whole lot of opinions as to what it means. And the Holy Spirit's really good at his job in my life and probably pretty good at his job in your life too. And maybe a good question for you to ask is what does it look like for me to live a quiet life? And Holy Spirit, would you show me how I can live a quiet life? Because this isn't a suggestion for the local church to seek to live a quiet life. Part of what it means for me, because I don't know if you know this or not, but a little thing about me is that I don't like bullies at all. And sometimes I just go looking for a fight. It's not healthy. It's not a good part of me. I mean, it can be redeemed and used for God's glory, but sometimes there's something inside of me that's like, I'm just looking for somebody to say something so I'll, I can just jump in the, the fray, like to just get, like to roll up my sleeve and get after it. You know what I mean? I think it's the wrestler that's still like barely alive inside of me. Part of what it means for me to seek to live a quiet life is to say, there's all kinds of things that I could be passionate about. There's all, th uh, all sorts of things that I could be engaged in. There's all sorts of things that I could be known for. What I really want to be known for is what my mom is known for, which is a person who's faithful to share the gospel, the hope of Jesus, and the joy that I found in him with everybody that I know. It's not what I'm known for right now, but he's still working on me to make me what I ought to be. You know, it only took him a day to make all of creation. But he, he's patient with me. He's working on me. So seek to lead a quiet life. The second one, I think, is honestly, you, you're gonna have to laugh about it. He says, to mind your own business. Right? To mind your own business. That's, it's, it's, it's pretty flat. You know what I mean? It, just mind your own business. You, there's several little videos of little kids going, you worry about yourself. You, you just worry about yourself. Like, I'll take care of me. You worry about, I, mind your own business. I don't have to speak to every issue. And can I say this? The mission of God is not a spectator sport. And the people of God do not need color commentators. We, we don't need color commentary running along the way. What we need are participants. So I think a good question as far as minding your own business is this. Am I willing and am I in a position to be part of the solution? Am I willing to be part of the solution? Am I in a position to be part of the solution? Nowhere in my life does this play out more prominently than when I make the foolish mistake of getting on Twitter and looking at anything related to the Southern Baptist Convention because I want to lose my ever loving mind when I see the way that people bite and devour one another. And, and I mean, you all like, I think it's Mike Tyson who said, I can tell by the way that some of y'all type on your keyboards that you've never been punched in the mouth. <laughs> and there are some times when I'm like, okay, remember you've been punched in the mouth. You know what I'm saying? There are times when I just want to jump into the fray and fight. And then I have to ask myself, is this my fight? Is this really where I'm supposed to give my energy and effort? Is this really the thing that I want to commit myself to? Has God put me in a position of authority or responsibility? If so, you got to engage, right? You got to engage. If not, maybe you want to use discretion and wisdom and determine whether or not that's your business, that's your fight. And if it doesn't help, those first two questions don't help you, try clearly defining this for your own self. What is my business? What's the work that God's given to you? What's the ministry that God's given to you? What's the insight that God's given to you? What's the expertise that God has given to you? 
Because I think there's two great problems in the church today. Well, really, there's probably a thousand, but two are relevant to this sermon, so that's what I'm going to share. One of them is that we're all very good at minding other people's businesses. We're all very good at evaluating whether or not someone else is doing a good job in the thing that they're trying to do. And the second is that we're often very bad at being faithful with our own business. And I think they're related. I, mean, I just, I think they're related. You know, the most joy-filled servants of the Lord that I know, like the, the followers of Jesus that are the most joy-filled people that I know, they're just doing their thing, whatever their thing is. The times in my life when I've been filled with the most joy, when I've been most satisfied, have been the times when I've just done the things that God's given me to do. The times when I have restless anxiety, the times when I'm frustrated and irritated, most often are the times when I'm thinking about the stuff that everybody else is supposed to do. And the nature of love says, I'm gonna focus on giving my part, irregardless of whether or not the other person gives their part. And the call to us is to love. And when we love, when we love, like when we give it away, when we do the thing, we become so satisfied, so hopeful, so filled with joy, and by the way, so stinking inspirational. The third thing is this, to work with our own hands, Paul says, as we commanded you. To work with your own hands. Sometimes the solution is, just as my mom says, to get off of your blessed assurance. I found a website a while back that I love, that I love. And I really loved it when I had to work with students more than what I do now. And the website is this, letmegoogle.com. That's the website, letmegoogle.com. There are several of these websites that you can find that are all exactly the same thing. But here's how it works. Is like, let's say that Josh reaches out to me and he says, hey, um, I was wondering if you knew how many cows are in Texas. And that's the phrase that I used this morning when I double checked this website to make sure it was still good. And what you do is you go to letmegoogle.com and you type in how many cows are in Texas and it then creates a link that plays a small video of a person typing into a search bar, google.com, how many cows are in Texas, question mark. And then it says, wasn't that easy? And then it takes you to the page that shows you the result. Like, let me Google that for you. So many times, so many of us will feign a helplessness that is really just laziness. And laziness among the people of God who've been given the precious gift of life on a planet and life in his son is a sin. It's a sin in me. I, I was convicted on this point today because I have needed for like a month to do more work on my backyard. I have been observing the stinking gigantic pine tree bushes in my front yard that I have not yet figured out how to reach the top of. And I, you know why I haven't figured out how to reach the top of them? It's not because I'm short, because short people can figure things out. So forget anybody who thought that. You guys are jerks if you thought that. You need to repent of your sin real quick. It's because I'm lazy. And I'm sort of just hoping that the branches will either chop themselves off or through neglect, the bushes will die and evaporate. <laughs> Why? Because I don't want to do the work. Why don't I want to do the work? Because I don't enjoy the work. That, I think that's why it's called work and not recreation. Because it's just actually work. 
And Paul says to work with your own hands. And thinking about this through the posture of brotherly love, through the posture of the ministry of redemption, and through the, through the lens of a local church, one of the reasons why it's important for all of us to do our part is so that the church can be agile, so that the church can respond to real needs and can seize spirit-given opportunities. Don't be lazy, Raiden. And by the way, can we also say in a culture of affluence and wealth, don't look down on people who are trying. Don't denigrate people who are working at jobs that you feel are a lower station than your own. Can we celebrate and honor those people in the way that we interact with them? People that are serving you at a drive-through line, people that are giving you your food at McDonald's, maybe before we think that we're better than them, we could just remind ourselves we're eating at McDonald's, which I, I think communicates something. You know what I'm saying? Like it says something. Can we have humility and celebrate people and honor people who are saying, I'm trying. I, I'm trying. Every time I go through a fast food restaurant, I honestly think that has gotta be one of the hardest jobs in our culture today. To deal with endlessly ungrateful people who want to have it their way right away. While there's a line of a hundred other people who also want the same. And a slight imperfection becomes an unacceptable failure and mistake. You see that the way that we honor people and love people and treat people can stand out to a world around us as exemplary and different. And when we do the thing that we can do, when we do the part that we can do, the resources of the church are freed up to serve people who actually need help. People who need not a hand out, but a hand up. Those both inside the church and those outside the church. And as opportunities present themselves, the church can seize the opportunities. I have a hope for our upcoming budgets I don't know that we'll be able to get it done in the next one, probably not, but God's gonna do what God's gonna do, amen, right? Yeah. Amen, God's gonna do what God's gonna do. But one of my hopes is that our budget to love and serve our community, like our, what we call now local missions that I wanna call just Love Glen Ed or something like that, that that would become the single largest item in our budget. Because we are, after all, a local church. And that we would say to every opportunity that presents itself, that's given to us by the Spirit of God, that we would say, we're able to say yes. Let's seek the Lord and see if we should. We're able to respond. We're able to act. We have the resources. We have the agility. We have the manpower. And we're willing to do anything for our community because we are the living embodiment of the gospel. We are the proclaimers of the hope of the world. The two postures for the church, redemptive and agile, why does it matter? I think one of the biggest questions in life is what is wrong with the world? And right now, you guys, right now, I gotta tell you, it is incredible to me how many people not only know what's wrong with the world, but also how to fix it. If you watch any television at all, if you search, if you open a computer, you might not even open an internet explorer. You might just open your computer. You're going to see ads from people who can tell you what's wrong with the world and that they know how to fix it. And not only that, but they exclusively have the capacity to be able to fix it. And all you have to do is vote for them. This is the question. What's wrong with the world? And the second one is just like it and just as important. How do we fix it? The question for you and I is whether the story of our church, the story of our families, the story of our lives 
matches the story that we profess to believe, which is that God created the world and he created men and women in his own image, that they existed in a perfect environment and in a perfect state, and then drove it straight into the wall that everything was broken because of sin, that all of creation groans under the weight of sin. I'm personally convinced that winter is an effect of sin because Adam and Eve were walking around the garden with no clothes on. Ain't nobody goes outside in winter with no clothes on. I'm just saying. It might not be theologically true, but it seems pretty possible. We don't have to look far to see the brokenness I mean, I I could just look at my front yard. There's weeds. I can look at my own life. I'm getting older. My body's less efficient. I can walk into Walmart and see the evidences of the brokenness that we live in. We see injustices everywhere. A world that groans under the weight of sin. And how do we fix it? We don't, Jesus does. That's just the truth. The hope of the world is not a change in one policy or a change in one party. It might make things better in some ways, but everybody's fallen. So you know what that means? It's gonna make stuff worse in other ways. That's the truth. But when Jesus comes in, he transforms us He begins the work of sanctification, someday resulting in a new heaven and a new earth, in a glorified body and in a sanctified Raiden when the work is done, when he's finished. To live with a redemptive posture is to orient your whole life around the mission of God. It doesn't mean everybody becomes a pastor. It doesn't mean that everybody becomes a vocational missionary. It doesn't even mean that everybody goes on mission trips as we think of them and as we refer to them. It means that what you're doing, you understand, is part of the redemptive plan of God. All of your friendships are part of the redemptive plan of God. Every good thing about you, every intelligence that you possess, every skill that you possess, every hobby that you have, everything about your life was intended for the purpose of the gospel moving forward in the world. To live with a redemptive posture is to orient your whole life around the mission of God the second posture, being, agil- uh, being agile, having agility, just means that the resources of your heart and the resources of your life are freed up so that you can be generous as the Spirit gives opportunity and the King James word, unction. Not every opportunity is your opportunity. Not every need is supposed to be filled by your pocket. But when we build into our lives margin, we have the freedom to do something. If you fill up every second of your life, and if you spend every dollar that you make, then you are a slave. You have no freedom. I considered and decided not to because it sort of felt like maybe it wouldn't go over real well, but I considered and would invite you to consider doing this this week to fast from social media, to just not get on it at all, to take the radical step of deleting it from your phone and then to say, for one week, I'm not going to look at any social media sites because it's so easy for our lives to be consumed It's so easy for the engine to always be running, for the brain to always be receiving information. And when our attention is always consumed, then we don't see things. We miss it. It's it's like the old video where uh, we were talking about this last night at a Halloween party that I was at, where it's like, how many times does the white team pass the basketball? And you see the, like, you're like, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. I, I think uh, 10. 
I think it's 10, might be 11, might've been 11. And then they go, did you notice the gorilla moonwalking across the back of the video? And I was like, what? And they show the video again and you're like, what in the world happened? I missed a six foot tall gorilla moonwalking in a video. How did I miss that? My attention was consumed by something else. If every moment of my attention is consumed, then I have no attention to give to anything else, including a wonderful opportunity to serve someone, to love someone, to encourage someone, to share the hope of the gospel to someone, or just to be present with someone to have nothing important to say to them, to have nothing good to give to them, to have nothing wonderful or sacrificial to serve them with, but just to say, I'm just going to be with you right now. I'm gonna be with you. I'm gonna look at your eyes. I'm gonna listen to your voice. And I'm just gonna be here. I have found in my life, the people who have done that for me have made a profound and lasting impact on me. I'll never forget when our daughter was born, the pastor of our church, who I wasn't super close to, like we weren't best friends or anything like that. We weren't enemies or, you know, just, just we had a working relationship. He showed up at the hospital when we got there. He showed up. He came to me and he said, hey, um, I'm gonna be in the lobby just in case anything happens if you need me. I got my computer, I'm gonna just do some work, but I'll just be here. To just, just be present, to just show up. We give so that we can be agile as a church, responding to needs and seizing opportunities. We give and we serve because we want to be agile and responsive. We wanna have more resources. It'd be great to have a building. I would just love it. I'm, I'm praying actively that God would give us our own place. Not because our own place is a solution to our own problems because it's one more opportunity and one more tool in the belt to serve our community with. It's one more way that we can love the city around us. And let me tell you something, if I lose sight of that, if our elders lose sight of that, you have to help us remember. The purpose of every resource that we possess is not to benefit ourselves, is not to enrich ourselves, the purpose is to generously and joyfully love and serve the people that God has put us here to love and to serve. That's why. All of that to say, you and I are missionaries. You're a missionary, period. Those of you who are Christians, you're a missionary. Your whole life is the mission trip. The house that you live in, the rhythm of life that God has given you, the skills, the interests, the hobbies, the family, the career, it's your mission trip. The more that we understand this, the more joy we're gonna possess. because the joy is found in giving and serving. That's where the joy of the Christian life is. It's not found by ascending to some perch. I can tell you, as a pastor, the majority of my pastoral ministry, almost none of it at Red Hill, but the majority of it has been spent saying, God, could you make me anything but a pastor? Like, is there any marketable skill that I possess? Because I'd love to just be a member of church. It used to be wonderful. I, I know as a member of a church, the grass is greener of some other side, you know what I mean? Like I had a pastor who used to say, the grass isn't greener in somebody else's field. That's somebody else's brown grass. So, you know, but this, this is my journey that I'm talking about. 
You and I, we are missionaries. We are made for the mission. We're made for the mission. I just want to see God do something great. I want to see God do something where all of us can say with integrity, it's just a work of God. Look at what God has done. I want to see an army of church members who take the responsibility of the gospel, the responsibility of being a missionary so seriously that all of us together are banging down the doors of heaven and saying, we need more resources because we have all these opportunities. We have all these burdens. We have all these ways that we can see that we could be meaningful in the life of our community. We have all these ways that we can see the gospel would move forward. If only we had this tool, if only we had this resource, if only we had a couple more people who would shoulder the load with us. That will not happen because you have a charismatic pastor. I am not Moses coming down from the mountain with the tablets and the glowing face telling you, thus saith the Lord, let's go get the promised land. We are an army of spirit-filled people fulfilling the prophecies of Joel who said, no longer will they need anyone to instruct them for they will possess your spirit and your spirit will teach them. An army of missionaries willing to take a risk for the sake of the gospel, building a church that has a posture that is oriented towards redemption and that lives agile able to meet needs, ready to seize opportunities. That's, I think, what Paul was saying when he said, guys, you're already doing this. Now just do it some more. Because guys, can I just tell you, I've been part of a lot of churches and I wanna tell you, living with a posture of redemption, living with a posture of agility, we're already doing this. Let's just do it some more. Let's pray together. God, thank you for this church family. I just, I know so many pastors struggling. I know so many churches hurting. I've lived through the pain of a divided church and critical church members who didn't like me who didn't want to go anywhere with me and who really just wanted me to go away. Thank you for teaching us about brotherly love at our church. Thank you. I know that didn't happen because I'm a good preacher or because I'm a good pastor. That happened because in your mercy, you sent your spirit. And you taught us. You taught us how to love each other and how to be loved by each other. And we're just saying, would you do that more in us? Will you help us to raise the sails of gospel generosity and gospel effort to know our part is to try to speak to give, to go. Our, we have a part. But to know we can do all that work and unless you do your part, it's just a waste of our time. We need you, God. We need you. Help us to be an army of encouragers, an army of givers, an army of goers, and most importantly, an army that is filled with your spirit. Because we know how we overcome, not by might, not by power, but through you. God, anyone here who is not part of the family, would you speak to them right now and tell them they're welcome. They can come on in. Bunch of misfits and weirdos. 
bunch of people who are really good at messing it all up. Bunch of people who understand there's a body and blood of Jesus that makes us acceptable to you, that brought us back, that reconciled us, that redeemed us. Would you just speak to them right now and call them to faith in Jesus? Those of us who have put our faith in Jesus, would you teach us about brotherly love? We love you and we pray this in your name, amen. Red Hill, we take the Lord's Supper together on a weekly basis. Jesus said about it, as often as you do this in my name, you proclaim my death until I come again. The Lord's Supper is for followers of Jesus. The Lord's Supper is a means of us demonstrating to ourselves and demonstrating to one another that it was the broken body and the spilled blood of Jesus that made a new way to God. A new covenant, Jesus said, in my blood. Proclaiming to ourselves and proclaiming to each other, we're made right with God because of what Jesus did for us. Our lives are transformed because of what Jesus did for us. Our sins are forgiven because of what Jesus did for us. And we keep making that pro proclamation through the Lord's Supper until he comes. And then you know what happens? We have the wedding feast of the Lamb. Today, as you take the Lord's Supper, I want you to understand a really important truth. That someday you and I will be at that banquet together with every other follower of Jesus who has ever lived and who will ever live. And sitting at the head of the table will be the name above every other name. And together we will break bread and raise our glasses to the founder of our feast, the one who brought us there. This morning is just an echo of eternity. It's a reminder to you, not just of events in the past, not just of truth in the present, but of reality for all eternity. We are made right by him. We take the Lord's Supper, we give. I've already told you why. I don't need to tell you more, except to say this. You should give joyfully. You should give generously. You should only give what God has laid on your heart to give. That's what you give. So you can look to him and whatever he says to give, give it. And then we're gonna sing together again, which we love to do and which God loves when we do. The scriptures say that he inhabits the praises of his people. We want him to be present with us today. We need him to be present with us today. Because after singing some, praying some, and preaching some, we still need more. We still need some work to be done. We still need a spirit. So when you're ready, you take the Lord's Supper. Anyone who needs to pray or would like to talk to me or to Josh will be available in the back. Would love to meet with you and talk with you and pray with you. Anyone who's making a decision this morning or who'd like to share a prayer request with our staff and our elders, please fill out that connection card and just drop it in the offering box that's over in the hospitality area. Listen carefully to the Spirit and do what He says.